0: John chapter 8, verse 48. Our text this morning will be verses 48 through 59. And that's what we'll read here together. Getting to then in verse 48. then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly? That you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. If it is my father who honors me, of whom you say he is your God. Yet you have not known him. But I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was I am then they took up stones to throw at him but Jesus hid himself and went out into the or went out of the temple going through the midst of them and so passed by that's the reading of God's word again let us pray Oh Lord this is your holy word given to us it reveals what you require of us and your will for us for our salvation we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us by your spirit through it, even through the preaching of your word for your own glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As part of our worship here at Providence, as is the case in many Christian churches across the world, even we often recite together what is called the Nicene Creed. And that creed is the result of the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. The reason, or at least one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, that council came together in that year was because there was a heretic running around. His name was Arius, and he was preaching a doctrine that is now called Arianism. And in that doctrine, which is false doctrine, he said something like this. There was a time, speaking of Jesus, there was a time... When he was not. So he was saying that Jesus came into existence. Just like you. Just like me. He was born of a man and a woman. And so he denied that cardinal doctrine of Christianity. The virgin birth. He denied even the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the Bible also says elsewhere. There's nothing new under the sun. Men resurrect this old heresy here and there throughout the ages, and my guess is they will continue to do so. In fact, in the days of John the Apostle, the one who gave us the Gospel of John by the Holy Spirit, uh, there was a man named Serenthus who was teaching the same thing as Arius would teach centuries later. He would say that Jesus was merely a man. That he came into being the way all other men do through ordinary generation, through Mary and Joseph. And as uh, the old commentator, William Hendrickson, points out, um, John, the writer of this gospel, probably had this in view as he wrote this gospel. Now, there is a human author, but there's also the divine author. God gave us this. Bible. He gave us this gospel. He also did this through means, the means of men, in this case the disciple and apostle of the Lord Jesus. John. And so as John writes this letter he tells us as to why he wrote this letter. Again i remind you of it. It's in chapter 20 there in verse 30 it says, And Jesus truly did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might or may have life in His name. And so John, for one reason, writes this account of the life of Jesus, His death, burial, and resurrection as well. He writes it so that believers may be confirmed in their faith In the Lord Jesus Christ. And also that unbelievers may come to learn. And know of Jesus as well. It makes sense then. That one of the questions. Answered repeatedly in John's gospel. Is this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It's one of the greatest most important questions. You'll ever ask yourself. If you ask it. And this gospel answers it in many different ways, many different passages. Even the, the question itself is raised uh, in chapter seven and verse 12. We've seen this already. There are the people there, the Jews, the other people as well. It says the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? There is much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. So they're asking, well, who is this man? In John chapter 7 and verse 40, it says there, but now, or rather that's chapter 8, and we find verse 40 of chapter 7. There it is. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard these things, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. And so you can see. Jesus, who went about preaching what we call the good news, the gospel, the way of salvation, who preached God's word, they wondered, well, who is this man? Some say he's a great prophet or the prophet, the one promised in the Old Testament. Others say he's the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, the one who brings salvation. But in our text, as we've been seeing in John chapter eight, there are those Pharisees. Who would not say that Jesus is the Messiah. They would not acknowledge him as any prophet whatsoever. In fact they wanted Jesus God. They hated Jesus. They were angry at Jesus. Because he disrupted their power. He disrupted their office. Their um, purported righteousness. And their system of religion. And so then as we go through verses forty. 8 through 59 this morning, I simply want to do so and uh, to answer the question, who is Jesus? Or at least to note four truths concerning our Lord as we go through this text. Well, First of all, we see here about Jesus, we see his humble suffering. His humble suffering. That's in verse 48. It says, Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are Samaritan and and have a demon? You know, in Isaiah 53, Jesus is called the suffering servant. And so he comes into this life, into this world, I should say, as God. And he takes upon a human body. That's humbling for God to do that. And then he preaches the truth. He teaches the truth. He lives a sinless life and men shame him, men mock him. And that's what we see here. They scoff at him. They insult him. They say, you are a Jew. Do we not say rightly? They've been saying this. This is the rumor out in the land. Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan? I mean, in Jesus's day and that day, that was the worst of insults for the Jews. This goes back to an age old controversy in the Old Testament where after God's people have been taken into captivity in Babylon, some people, some of the Jews stay in the Holy Land. And then finally, some of God's people, or rather I should say, some of the Babylonians were taken from Babylon to Palestine. And so those Jews who remained back in Palestine while the rest were taken away into captivity, they intermarried with the Babylonians. And this was against God's law. And so then finally, when the Jews did return, they came back to find that some of their countrymen had intermarried with pagans, with the Babylonians. And this, again, was wrong. And they took it a step further and they would have no dealings with these, if you want to call it, these um, half-Jewish people. Because they would produce children who are not fully Jewish, you see. They were called Samaritans because Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. And so there was this age-old controversy. Remember in Jesus' day and... In John chapter 4, we've already looked at this. There was Samaria there. And if the Jews were traveling, they would not take the fastest, quickest route and go from north to south and go through Samaria. No, they would go around Samaria. They would painstakingly do so. And yet Jesus, John chapter 4, he needed to go through Samaria where he ministered to that Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. And in that conversation, she is shocked that Jesus is even talking to her. Jesus being a Jew She says, but but Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so you see here in this really intense, in in the original, it's very intense this conversation, um, this heated conversation. Um, The Pharisees, the Jews here, in verse 48, they say, Are you not a Samaritan? They insult Jesus. And they say, Do you not have a demon? They've already accused him of this. They'll accuse him of this later. I think it's in chapter 12. That's the rumor circulating. And uh, basically what they're saying is, Jesus, you are mad. You are insane. You're a loco, man. You're espousing all of this false doctrine. You're attacking our system. You're attacking our traditions. Who are you? Who do you think you are? It could be as well that Jesus failed to agree with their system. And that's why they call him a Samaritan. I mean, he did disagree with their system. Um, but the Samaritans, they did not recognize the complete Old Testament. They picked and chose as it were. So it could be another reason why they call him a Samaritan. But, but here again, they call him a, a demon. They say that he's demon-possessed. This is typical, isn't it, in a debate? When one is losing the debate, to resort to name calling, verbal abuse, it's called sometimes. And you just get emotional and you just say whatever comes to mind. It may be irrational or it may just be an ad hominem remark. It could be just calling someone a name just to get at them, make them go away. And that's what they do here as we see. And Jesus will not have it. As we think about their attack upon Jesus, I just remind you Christians today of what Jesus says elsewhere. Before I do that, let me ask you a question. Does this happen to Christians today? It does. Since Jesus, at least his physical body, is now at the right hand of God, the Father in heaven. And Jesus, his body is not on the earth Where do men go when they hate Jesus and want to attack Jesus? They attack Christians because we go in his name. We support, we extend, we repeat his message of the gospel. And so rather than attack Jesus, which they can't do, they attack us. And So I simply remind us all of that, that to live godly in Christ Jesus, as Paul says, will be to suffer persecution. All those who even desire to do so, Paul says, will suffer persecution. Remember in Acts chapter 9, there is Saul. He's a Pharisee at this point. He is not converted to the Lord Jesus. He is persecuting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, rounding them up, trying to throw them in jail and so forth. Jesus appears to him. Saul is converted instantly. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Me, But Jesus is in heaven. Saul is persecuting the church. Jesus' relationship with the church is so closely connected that Jesus would ask Paul, Why are you persecuting me? So to persecute the church of Jesus Christ is to persecute Jesus Christ himself. Jesus says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, what we see here happening to Jesus. Do not be surprised, Christian, when it happens to you. Now, the Bible also tells us as Christians, because we're not Jesus, because we have sin. That when we suffer, 1 Peter 2 says, make sure that we do not suffer wrongfully. Make sure we don't deserve it, not for our own faults, but that we are to follow Christ's example, who committed no sin, nor is deceit found in his mouth. So we have here then this first truth of our Savior, his humble suffering. Second, we see here his exemplary faith. That is, we see his faith and that faith is An example to us, even here today. In verses 49, we see this, and just want you to catch Jesus' composure here. He is attacked verbally, he's called names, he's called a demon. He says, they tell him, rather, that he has a demon. Jesus keeps his cool, he stays on message, he is not distracted or diverted. That's a logical fallacy to divert people in the argument. And maybe there are times where you just, you want to throw in the towel, you're done. You're done trying to defend the gospel. You're done trying to live the Christian life. Or maybe you're done trying to persuade men to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, we persuade men. Well, what is the key to never giving up? What was our Lord Jesus' key in persisting in the Christian life, in His calling, really? Really? His unique calling as the Savior. What was the key? Well, in verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. So he just states the fact. He states the truth. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. And so positively, he says what he is doing. He is honoring, he is glorifying the father. And you dishonor me. This goes back to what he said repeatedly. Jesus tells them, he says, you think you honor the father, but you dishonor me. You think you love the father, but you do not love me. He says to love me is to love the father. To honor me is to honor the father. If you truly honor the father, you will honor me. Why? Because the father, he said, has sent me. Jesus came representing the father in the father's name to do the father's will. That's why he had come. So in verse 50, he says, and I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. What is he saying here? He's he's not not really concerned about his own glory. He didn't come to brag and to point unto himself. No, he came to glorify his father, to do the will of his father. That's why he came. And he does this even if it causes shame for him, even if it causes difficulty for him, even if it is the, the cause of his own death. And it will be we're already told they were desiring to kill him at the end of this text. They'll pick up stones to stone him because of what he says. But here's the key. If you look at it in verse 50, the second half, there is one that's capitalized. There is one who seeks and judges. Who is that? speaking of his father, there is one who seeks and judges. What does he mean seeks? There is one, the father who seeks the glory, his own glory. Yes, but he seeks the glory of the son. You see, it's the father's intent. It was the father's purpose to glorify his son as his son, the Lord Jesus, walked about on this earth as he would suffer at Calvary and as he would be raised from the dead. And he says, there is one who judges. What is Jesus getting at here? Well, God the Father does judge people in space and time. He chastises even his own. He he chastises those whom he loves, but he also judges those in his wrath who disobey him, who are not even his. And he does that in space and time, but there's also that great day of judgment. We all must stand before God, we were told, before the judgment seat of Christ. There's that day coming, and Jesus is saying this, I believe. Though you falsely accuse me, I will not let this derail my mission, my purpose that the Father has given me. Why? Because the Father will one day judge and vindicate me. If Jesus is falsely accused and falsely convicted, the father will reverse that verdict and vindicate him. In other words, Jesus in his humanity, his human nature, he fully committed or committed his own care and his own case to his heavenly father. In Hebrews, you can turn there if you'd like. Hebrews chapter 12. uh, The writer there tells us how Jesus did this. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says in verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We're called to to run with endurance, to run the Christian marathon all of our lives. That race that is set before us, how? Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The implication there is that we trust him to get us through it. Who, for our joy, or for the joy that was set before him, Endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, Jesus looked beyond the shame of his earthly life and his first coming. He looked beyond that to the great reward that his heavenly Father would give him. And then he would sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus then got through his humility by focusing upon his future glorification. And so as we see Jesus here back in John chapter eight and what he does, we see his faith and that faith is an example to us as we walk about day by day going through our Christian lives. We can and should and will get through this life by looking beyond our sufferings in this life, by looking for the future glory that is headed our way, just as Jesus did even himself. And so when evil men mock us because of our Christian faith, when evil men falsely accuse us at work or wherever it might be, we can commit ourselves to the living God. Yes, there are times at which we should um, tell the truth. We should speak the truth and try to vindicate our name. Yes, but if that's impossible or if it's not an appropriate time or whatever, we, we should always, no matter the circumstances, commit our care and our case to the living God. Because God will one day make all that is wrong right at the last day. So Jesus gives us the key here. He trusts in His Heavenly Father. Are you trusting in your Heavenly Father this morning? Paul says that after Jesus' humiliation in Philippians 2. The Father gave to Jesus the name that is above every name. He has super exalted him into heaven so that at the name Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. We need to remember that this life is not it, this world is not it. You know, the whole politic thing, you know. Um, it's, it's a dirty thing. And it is necessary to have government, civil government. And as Christians, we should be soft in life. But you need to remember this. Um, this kingdom of America, whatever kingdom is out there in this world, it will be crushed by the kingdom of Christ on the last day. The only kingdom to last is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that. I love my country and the freedoms I enjoy. But I'm not guaranteed those freedoms all my life. My ancestors left their their country to come to this land to live free. And now we're seeing the demise and the fall of our own land. So I just remind us all of that this morning. So Jesus commits his care to his heavenly father. And you can see there in verse 51, he gives the invitation. He stays on track with his message. He says, most assuredly, truly, truly. Listen up. I say to you that if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. There's a condition. He says, if anyone keeps my word, what is he saying when he says keeps my word? He's talking about his message, the gospel, the good news. If you believe in him, if you trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins and salvation, not in Buddha, not in your mom and dad, not in your own works as did these Pharisees, but in him. He shall not see death. Anyone doesn't matter what your bloodline is. It doesn't matter what your status in society is. It doesn't matter what religion you come from. If you repent from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, he says, you will not see death. What a glorious promise that is. This is the true mark of discipleship, John 17, 6, it says there. Now, you're probably saying to Kevin, I, I know Christians. I know a lot of Christians. I have known a lot of Christians, and they died. Well, Jesus, I would say, obviously, is not talking about physical death here. He's talking about what the Bible says elsewhere is eternal death, he's talking about eternal destruction. He's talking about eternal death in hell forever, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm never dies. He says to the one that that comes to him and keeps his word in that way, he shall never die. In Revelation 2.11, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Revelation 20 talks about the second death. What a great promise we have here for the Christian. Physical death is merely the threshold into the very presence of God. If you're a Christian, death has no say over you, it has no power over over you. And Jesus promises this here even before his resurrection. And so we would think especially after his resurrection that men would believe in him. But he's already said that he who commits sin is a slave to sin and men need to be freed by God in order even to believe. John 14, 23. If you're a Christian here, this promise is for you. If you're If you've not yet believed in Jesus, this promise will be for you if you come to him. In John 14 23, speaking about death, he says this to his disciples If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's the promise. I mean, we will get a taste of that now by the indwelling Holy Spirit. But I believe even when we walk, as the psalmist says, through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so there's the promise there. Jesus, he defends the truth and he gives the invitation. And that leads us to the third thing this morning. And that is his determined truthfulness. That's in verses Fifty-two through 56, he is determined again and again to state the truth, to stay on message. And he says even the hard things that people didn't want to hear, but that they needed to hear. So they say in verses 52 following Abraham and the prophets are dead. What is their point in saying that? Jesus, you say that um, if anyone does your word, he will never see death, he will never taste death. But Abraham died. Um, the prophets died. So in other words, the claim that Jesus is making here to them, and even to us, is greater than any claim about Abraham with prophets. It's, it's Okay, did anyone survive the 90s here? If you're old enough to live through the 90s, you survived the 90s. Remember computers back then? Um, that's when computers began to emerge in every home. And I remember I, I had a PC, and it was kind of new to me. I was working on a term paper, Windows. Um, I learned the hard way, a hard lesson. I had typed one of my papers. I was about three-fourths through. I had footnotes, all of this, and for some reason, I had to go to the store and come right back. I came back, I sat down on my computer. And, uh, all right, wait a minute. My screen is frozen. Tried everything I could. Guess what I had to do? Reboot. Guess what happened to my term paper? Probably in outer space somewhere. I don't know where it went. If you find it, let me know. I had to start all over. So imagine in the nineties at that time, I came, you know, to, to the masses through TV or whatever. And I said, I have a software program that if you were to buy it and use it, it will never crash. Or today, I have an app that will never crash. What? Are, are you greater than Bill Gates? That's what I might be asked. And, and in a greater way, more glorious way, Jesus comes and says, I've come to give life, to give life abundantly. I've come to give eternal life. And so they respond, well, wait a minute, are you greater than Abraham? Are you greater than prophets? They both died. They never brought a message like that. So that's what's happening. That's why they're rejecting and ridiculing here. And again, they don't understand he's not speaking of physical death. He's speaking of the second death. In verse 40 or 54, again, he talks about the fact that he did not self-honor, but his father is the one who honors him. And he says, you say that he is your God. Yet you, verse 55, have not known him. Jesus makes a startling claim. He's talking in verse 48 to the Jews. If you go back and look at verse 13, he's speaking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the leaders in Israel. They were the teachers of the law. They were the lawyers of God's law. Jesus says, you have not known God. These are the ones that have been committed the oracles and the word of God. They study the scriptures. They go to the temple where they worship. They make all of the sacrifices and spill the blood and everything. They're the ones who are supposed to lead God, lead God's people back to God. But they have established this whole system of works, salvation, self-righteousness, taking the system that God had given to them and making it and twisting it into something else. And he says, You have not known God. This is startling. They may have a profession to know God, but that profession is empty. It is a phony. It is a facade. Jesus says, On the outside, you're a whitewashed tomb. You're pretty. You're all polished. But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. He says that to them in Matthew 23 how is this possible? It's because they know about God, but they don't know him. It's because they have not come to Jesus. They have not seen that whole Old Testament system to be what it was. Something to lead to the Messiah, to lead to the person of Jesus Christ. John says at the beginning of the gospel, he looks at Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God has provided this lamb. So you go back to the Old Testament, you see all the lambs and all the animals that were killed on the altar, all of their blood that was spilled, they were pointing forward to Jesus who would come and make the one perfect, complete, eternal sacrifice. But these Jews would have nothing of it. Today a person might attend services, a person might hold a Bible, a person um, may say they know God They may say they're a Christian and not know God. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I I am, I myself am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father, but through me. So Jesus continues to unmask their hypocrisy, their self-righteousness, their self-reliance before God. And he calls them liars because of that in verse 55. He says, if I say I do not know him, God, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. God cannot deny himself. Christ cannot deny himself. And so then he says in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. What a commentary on the entire Old Testament. Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day. He saw Jesus' day and he rejoiced and was glad because of it. Jesus, why does he bring this up? Well, they say, Abraham is our father. Abraham is our father. Abraham is our father. Abraham is our father. They're the physical descendants of Abraham. But Abraham is not their spiritual father. Not faithful Abraham. You see. And so Jesus points to Abraham. And his point is. Abraham had an entirely, completely different attitude concerning me than do you. They hated Jesus. They wanted to kill him. They wanted him to go away. But Abraham anticipated the coming Messiah, he anticipated Jesus. Abraham didn't have the full blown gospel at that time, but he had it in seed form. God in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, he made these promises to Abraham. He says, Abraham, through you, through your descendant, I will bless the nations, all of the nations, not just the Jews, but all will come and be blessed by me through one who is to come from you. Abraham was some 90 years old, I think, when he first had Isaac um, or Sarah was and Abraham was nearly 100, whatever. And that's part of the the miracle foreshadowing the virgin birth of Christ back, back then. But the point is that God promised that of the seed of Abraham, one would come who would bless the nations. The promise of the covenant. And so the Old Testament scriptures began to unfold all of that. And as it progresses, we see more and more and more about this one coming till we get to Isaiah 53. He's a man. He takes upon human flesh. He has a beard that is plucked out like a lamb. He goes into the slaughter. Why? Because the sins of God's people are laid upon him. So Abraham, he looked by faith and he saw Jesus to come and he rejoiced. In Hebrews chapter 11, it speaks of Abraham in the Old Testament, all those other Old Testament uh, faithful. In, Abra- in uh, Hebrews 11, 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, for the evidence of things unseen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. In Hebrews um, 11, chapter 13, it names all of these. And it said, These all died in faith. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. They were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Abraham saw the promises of God afar off. He embraced them and he believed them. That's how Abraham saw Jesus' day. Well, if you look at verse 57, they say, to him, you are not yet fifty years old. Of course not. He's in his early thirties, but they round it up to fifty, and they say, "You are not fifty years old." And have you seen Abraham? They're thinking, okay, so Abraham saw Jesus' day. Um, they're assuming Jesus is saying he lived in Abraham's day, which was eighteen hundred fifty years before Jesus, and and yet Jesus, you're only, you're not even fifty. Are you crazy? And they accuse him, of course, of having the demon. Notice what he says in verse 58. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What is Jesus saying there? Well, that phrase I am in the Greek is ego, a And it takes us all the way back to the Old Testament in Exodus three, where Moses is brought to God. God appears. He manifests himself in the burning bush. And he tells of how he has heard the cry of God's people. He's remembered the covenant with Abraham. And he tells Moses how he will deliver his people from the enslavement of the Egyptians. And Moses says, okay, okay. Um, who shall I tell them sent me? You know, every God has a name. That's the implication. And what could be. And God says, tell them I am sent you. Um, tell them the eternal one. The one who is being sent you, okay, and that is, you know, what we call the Tetragrammaton. Um, So that's the covenant name for God. You know, the scribes considered that name so holy when they would copy that name down. They didn't put the vowels in there, so they put four consonants, and that transliterates today into Jehovah. Some use Adonai and. All of these things, but the point is it's God's covenant name. And so Jesus is telling them before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is saying, I have always existed. I am eternal. I am the great. I am. I am God. The living and true God. There is none other besides me. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Israel. I am the God who created all things. I am the God who led my people out of Egypt. All he had to say was, Before Abraham was, I am. If you look at verse 59, there's no disputing that this is what Jesus meant. Why? Because they pick up stones. They're ready to stone him. Why? Why? Because in their mind, he committed blasphemy. And according to Old Testament law in Leviticus 24, the punishment for blasphemy is stoning, death by stoning. And so here Jesus proclaims to be the second person of the Godhead. As Philippians 2 said, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but He humbled himself. He took upon the form of a servant and the likeness of men. And so shrouded at this time, even well, at this time, shrouded in human flesh is the second person of the Godhead. You know, we talk about God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit, one God, three persons. The second person came down, took upon human flesh. That's Jesus. That's what he's saying here. (coughs) So then the question is, do you believe in this divine nature of the Lord Jesus? You see, that's the fourth thing we learn here is his divine nature. Now, why has he revealed himself as such? He's connecting the salvation of the Old Testament with the salvation of the new. The salvation of his people out of the house of bondage, out of Egypt. With the salvation of the new. We are enslaved. He who commits sin is a slave to sin. He is the great I am. He leads us from slavery. To servitude. To worship of the living and true God. He gives us life. He gives us the forgiveness of sins. He washes us through the waters of baptism. Which ultimately really. Is his own blood. You see Jesus here. I think is showing these self-righteous Pharisees, these Pharisees who relied upon their own works and so forth to save themselves. You cannot save yourself. God had to come and save us. The God, man, the man, Jesus Christ. And so it's by grace, it's by the gift of God that we are saved, His gift, not our works. Lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2.8 says. It's only by grace that we are saved so that if you're a Christian, your salvation is secure. Why? Because it's in the great hand of the great I am. Neither death nor life nor any other created thing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Who is Jesus? He's the humble servant. He here shows us his exemplary faith, his determined truthfulness, and his divine nature. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, there's so much we can unpack and say, I'm sure, about these words of our Lord Jesus. We pray though, you would impress these truths upon our heart. That we will believe this cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. That he is the living and true God. The second person of the Godhead. Help us to have confidence knowing what comes after we die. And so we might live for you. We pray in his name. Amen.